Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. It's been a wonderful day of worship. Appreciate Brother Zach and the wonderful job he did leading us in our singing, to Brother Andy for his remarks, and to all of you who are here this morning, especially any visitors we have in our crowd. I want to begin the lesson by asking a question to all the parents in the room, especially all the parents who are currently raising children. If you're currently raising school-age children, have you ever found yourself hearing your children say words and you didn't have a clue as to what they were talking about? That ever happened to you before? I'm going to tell y'all something. Now that I'm raising a teenager, I find myself going through that all the time. For example, whenever my son told me something was lit, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I thought maybe he was saying something in the house was on fire. I didn't know that he meant that he was telling me I was doing something really cool or, or kind of good. And when my son used the word drip, I didn't know drip meant that someone's got some style to them and they look fashionable and they got a little swag to them. And I didn't know the word bruh was actually a question. <laughs> That's actually when a teenager is asking you, are you serious right now? Are you, are you kidding me? And the word baddie, you ever heard your teenager use the word baddie before? Well, that's actually a word that teenage boys use to refer to a pretty, attractive, or a good-looking girl. Now, we're hearing that word. We're hearing that word a whole lot these days. Now, remember, I told you last week that my daughter told me a few, few days ago that she didn't consider me to be an old man, but I'm going to tell y'all something. When I hear my son using words like this, I start feeling a little bit old. I start feeling a little seasoned and a little out of step. I mean, until he explained to me the meaning of those words, I didn't have a clue as to what any of them meant. And I wonder if as the people of God, if we have the same problem when it comes to certain words of the Bible. I wonder if as the people of God, whenever we hear certain words from the Bible or whenever we read certain words from the Bible or even when we say certain words from the Bible, do we really understand what those words mean? Do we really understand that the Bible's use of those words? For example, consider one of the words that Peter uses in the list of ingredients for spiritual growth that was read for us in our scripture reading this morning is actually the next thing that we need to talk about in our monthly series of lessons that is devoted to our yearly theme of growing to spiritual maturity. It's the word godliness. The word godliness. You see the word godliness there in 2 Peter 1 and verse 7? You see that word there in the text? Let me ask you a question. How often do you use that word? How, how often do you use that word in, in your spiritual vocabulary? Do you use that word a lot? Have you used that word today? Have you used it in the last couple of days? Have you used it in the last couple of weeks? If you use it a lot, how confident are you that, that you really know what that word means? How confident are you that, that you really understand how the Bible is using that term? If somebody puts you on the spot today and they ask you, hey, tell me what is godliness? Define godliness. What would you say to them? How, how would you respond to that? How would you explain to somebody biblical godliness and its value in a person's life? If you don't mind, this morning, 
as we continue our monthly series of lessons from 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to talk with you this morning about what may be the most misunderstood ingredient in Peter's list of spiritual ingredients, and that's the ingredient of godliness. I want to talk with you about godliness. Now that we've added to our faith virtue and the virtue knowledge and the knowledge self-control and then perseverance, I think it's important that we spend some time talking about godliness. And the first thing I want to do is I want to just define the word. I want to define the word godliness. I want to make sure that we really understand what godliness is all about. You see, the word godliness or the word godly appears about 30 times in the New Testament. It is especially used by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul in one common definition that is usually given for godliness is a lot of people say it means to be like God. You ever heard someone say that before? You ever heard someone say that godliness means to be like God? That is a popular belief concerning the definition of this word. And the fact of the matter is that definition doesn't really help us a lot. It doesn't really help us a lot. That definition really doesn't distinguish this ingredient from the other ingredients in 2 Peter chapter 1. I mean, if you stop and think about it, while we certainly need to strive to be like God, while we need to strive to imitate and, and develop the qualities of our Heavenly Father, the reality is all of the ingredients that are found in 2 Peter chapter 1 are designed to help us do that. All of those things you read about in 2 Peter chapter 1 are designed to make us more like our Heavenly Father. They're designed to make us more like God. They're designed to make us more like Jesus. In fact, all of those things were found in the life of Jesus when he was here on this earth. I mean, when Jesus was on this earth 2,000 years ago, he had virtue, right? He had excellent or moral, excellent moral character. And he had perfect knowledge of the word of God. And he had self-control and he persevered in the cause of God. And he, and he exercised or demonstrated brotherly kindness and, and love for God and love for other people. Jesus had all those qualities. Jesus had all those qualities at the, at the highest level. And guess what? If we put them into practice in our lives, we're going to be more like him. We're going to be more like Jesus. We're going to be more like God. There's more to godliness than striving to be like God. In fact, we learn that when we just consider the definition of the word. You see, the word godliness doesn't mean to be like God or God-likeness. Instead, it means to have reverence for God. It means to live a life of reverence and piety and humility and devotion and honor towards God. It means to seek to honor God in every part of your life. You see, if I really respect God and revere God as my holy creator, then that's going to then that's going to manifest itself in my life. That's going to manifest itself in my conduct. That's going to compel me to want to honor God in every part of my life. It's going to compel me to have humility and reverence and devotion towards God. When you go in your Bible, please, to the book of Titus, chapter two, look at Titus, chapter two. And consider what the Apostle Paul says in Titus, chapter two, and verse 11. And Titus, chapter two, and verse number 11 the Apostle Paul says in Titus 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness 
and worldly desires, worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Notice how in those verses, Paul talks about the grace of God. He talks about the grace of God that has been demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. He says that God's son, Jesus Christ, the grace that has been demonstrated through Jesus Christ should compel us to do something. It should compel us to live a certain way. It should compel us to live godly. It should compel us to live lives of righteousness and godliness. It should compel us to, to deny ungodliness and live lives that bring reverence, that show reverence, piety, humility, devotion, and honor towards God. Paul is saying here that godliness is part of Christian character. It's part of a Christian's DNA. It's a matter of life and a way of life. It is a proper, a proper response to the grace of God, and it reflects the respect and reverence we have for the Lord. That's what godliness is, and I want to submit that this should impact, this should impact every part of our lives. It should impact every part of my life and every part of your life. It should impact our thinking. When you go in your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 39. Remember, in Genesis chapter 39, we read about Joseph's time as a slave in Egypt. Remember, his brothers sold him as a slave, and he eventually ended up in Egypt working for a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar seems to be a pretty good guy. He treats Joseph fairly. He promotes him. But Potiphar's wife is evil. She wants to have an affair with Joseph. And she tries to take him by force. And notice how Joseph responds. He says, there's no one greater in this house than I. And he's withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? I want you to notice carefully what's going on there in that text. Notice how in addition to not wanting to offend his master Potiphar, the main thing that deterred Joseph from committing this terrible sin of sexual immorality was his respect and reverence for God. It was the respect he had for God. It was the fact that even though he was a long way from his family, living as a slave in Egypt, he still knew that God could see him. He, he still knew that God was, was with him. He still knew that his actions, what he did, had a direct impact on God. As a young man living as a slave in Egypt, Joseph possessed godliness. He had piety, respect, and honor for the Lord. He was constantly mindful of God and how his decisions had a direct impact on the Lord. Now, you contrast that with the actions of David. Think about David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've been having a series, a monthly series of lessons from, from David for the last few months. And, and we've made the point, I've tried to at least emphasize the point, that David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible is very clear about that. But even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's not perfect. He, he's not flawless. He's not, he's not sinless. In 2 Samuel 11, we can read about a time when he committed some atrocious sins. And that really began the downward spiral of his life. He committed adultery with another man's wife. 
And then he set up her husband to be killed in battle to cover up that sin. He did a bunch of horrible things, committed adultery, committed murder. And I want to submit that the core of all his evil in those moments was a failure to be godly. It was a failure, at least in those moments, to demonstrate godliness. It was a failure to pause in those very tempting situations and ask himself, what does God want me to do here? How does God feel about this? How does God feel about me having wanting to have an affair with another man's wife? How does God feel about me trying to cover this sin by setting up her husband to be killed in battle? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to respond to these kind of situations? See, David didn't do that kind of stuff in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if we want to be godly in every part of our lives, we have to be different. We have to allow godliness to impact our thinking. We have to constantly ask ourselves questions like, hey, what does God feel about this? How does God feel about this? You see, godliness will make me aware of God at all times. It'll have me thinking about God all the time, all the time in my life when I'm on my job and my coworkers making me mad. My boss is making me mad. My teammate is making me mad. Somebody in school is making me mad. When my spouse upsets me, when my parents upset me, when I'm alone with the person that I'm dating and they're trying to pressure me to have sex. Or I'm alone at home with my laptop or my iPad or I'm at school and, and I see somebody all sitting all by themselves at the lunch table and they don't have any friends. When I have godliness, when I find myself in those, in those kind of moments in my daily life, I'm going to stop and, and I'm going to ask myself, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do in this situation? What does God want me to do when I get mad? What does God want me to do? When my spouse makes me mad. What does God want me to do when somebody cuts me off on the 202? How does God want me to talk? How does God want me to talk to my brethren? How does God want me to talk to my teachers? How does God want me to talk to my parents or my coaches? Or, or, or the people on my, on my job? How does God want me to dress? How does God want me to treat this person that, that I'm dating? How does God want me to treat this person at school who's sitting all by themselves and they don't have any friends? You see, when I have godliness in my life, I'm always going to be thinking about God. In every situation of my life, I'm going to be asking myself, what does God want me to do? How would Jesus respond to this kind of situation? Godliness will impact our thinking when we have it in our lives, and it's also going to impact what we're doing right now. It's going to impact our worship. In fact, the word godliness that Peter uses, Peter uses in 2 Peter 1 and verse 7, it actually comes from two words. It comes from the words, originally, it comes from the words well, W-E-L-L, -L, and worship. Well and worship. Worship well. Worship God well. Honor God in our worship. That's where the word originally comes from. And then it began to evolve into referring to honoring God in every part of your life. But originally the term was about worship. You see, people who possess godliness, they don't worship God in just any way they desire. 
They, they don't view this time like this, this time we're here as a time where they can come together and be entertained and they can just sit merely idle in the pew and be spectators. They don't view the quote unquote five acts of worship as some sort of spiritual checklist and we're just going to go through the mechanics. No, sir, no, ma'am. People who have godliness view worship as a time to honor God. They viewed as a time to worship God in the way he desires. They viewed as a time to praise God and exalt his glorious name because he's so good to us all the time. They viewed as a time to sing out and sing loud and try to concentrate on the songs and not just mumble through the words because I'm ashamed of my singing voice and I don't want anybody to hear it. They viewed it as a time to, to really meditate and concentrate on what the unleavened bread represents and what the fruit of the vine represents and not just go through the motions, not just break the bread and drink the juice so I can check this thing off on a spiritual checklist today. They viewed it as a time to listen carefully and have my Bible open through the preaching and the teaching of the word of God and, and not be constantly looking at my, my watch and thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch and which restaurant I'm going to go to today. They viewed it as a time to, to give God of their first fruits and not the leftovers. When that collection basket comes around, I'm not going to just give God what's left over now that I got my DirecTV, my, my Netflix, and my Disney Plus, and I made sure all my luxuries are taken care of. Now I'm going to give God the leftovers. No, people who do that don't have godliness. They don't have reverence for God when it comes to worshiping, worshiping him. And I'm reminded of the book of Malachi. Do y'all remember Malachi chapter 1? Remember, as we go to the prophets, the last book of the Old Testament, and the time of Malachi, the Lord is rebuking the Israelites because when it comes to worship, when it comes to giving him sacrifices on the altar, they're giving him junk. The priests are giving him junk. The people are giving him junk. And the Lord had this to say about their worship and how they lacked reverence and godliness in their worship. In Malachi 1 and verse 6, in verse 6 he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that, that, and that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, the blind animals, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You see what the Lord is saying there? You see how when it came to these weak and sick and pathetic sacrifices that these people were offering God in worship, God says he was dishonored by that. God says he was insulted by that. God says he wasn't going to take any of the junk that they had to offer him. That's what God says there. And I'm going to tell you all something. When we add godliness to our lives, we're not going to be like those people. We're not going to insult God like that. Godliness will impact our worship. 
Godliness will, will motivate us to give God our best when it comes to worship. It will help us view the worship assembly as a sacred time where Christians come together to honor God and praise his name and do his will with our whole hearts. Godliness will impact our thinking. It's going to impact our worship. And let me just say, it's also going to impact our attitude. Our attitude, when I'm prospering in my life, when I'm doing well financially, when I'm healthy, when my, my wife is healthy, my kids are healthy, my, my relationships are going great, I'm doing well on my job, I'm getting promoted on my job, I'm getting offered great scholarships to great universities. When that kind of stuff is going on in my life, godliness is going to keep me, it's going to keep me humble. It's going to help me understand the truth about my blessings. It's going to help me keep giving the glory to God and be dependent upon God and understand that God is the source of my blessings, not, not myself. And when I start struggling in my life, when things get tough for me, if I lose my job, if I don't get that scholarship, if I don't get into the college I want to go to, if my health begins to fade, if my wife gets sick, if my kids get sick, if the people I trust begin turning their backs against me and they disappoint me and they let me down and they mistreat me, godliness will help me never take my frustrations out on God. Godliness will lead me to still giving God the glory. It will lead me to never blaming God and shaking my fist at heaven and asking God, why are you doing this to me? No, godliness will lead me to continue honoring the Lord no matter what's going on in my life. And I'm thinking about Job. Look at Job chapter 1. Remember, Job went through some very tough times. In fact, at the end of Job 1, we read about the time when he learned about the death of his children. He lost all his children on the same day. Some of you have lost children before. You've buried a child. You've buried children. You know how, how horrible that is and how that's one of the worst things somebody can go through in this life. And imagine going, losing all your kids, 10 kids, on the same day. That's horrible. And yet, what did Job say in Job chapter 1 and verse 20? In Job chapter 1 and verse 20, when he learned of the death of his children, the Bible says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. He's still worshiping God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away Blessed, not cursed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Notice how despite going through some of the worst trials that any person could ever go through in this life, instead of blaming God and cursing God and turning away from God and shaking his fist at heaven, Job practiced godliness. Job continued to be reverent towards God. And he was devoted to God and he honored God and he acknowledged the sovereignty and the blessings of God. See, godliness, when we get it in our lives, when we have that reverence for God that manifests itself in our lives, it's going to impact every part of us. It's going to impact my thinking. It's going to impact my worship. It's going to impact my attitude. And so the final question I want us to think about this morning is this. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? Now that we know what godliness is and how it can benefit us, 
What do we need to do? Well, there are three things we need to do very quickly. First, we need to pursue it. We need to pursue godliness. I want to show you several passages right now, so please just follow me if you're able to do that. Please go in your Bible, and we're going to be in the New Testament for all of these passages towards the back of your Bible. I want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, please. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, remember I told you earlier that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had a lot to say about godliness. I want to give you some examples of this. So let's just work these Bibles for just a little bit this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse number 10, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, For the love of money, not money, he says, the love of money. Do you see that? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things. Flee from making money your top priority in life. Flee from all the evils that can result from loving money. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Notice how among the things that as the people of God we need to be pursuing in our lives is godliness. We need to be pursuing godliness. When the Bible says we need to be pursuing godliness, it means we need to be going after it. We need to be chasing it. We need to be trying to track that down. We need to fix our eyes on it and seek to acquire it with every fiber of our being. Paul says pursue godliness. So how do we pursue that? It's not enough just to tell us to pursue it. How do we pursue it? Well, go to Peter now. Let's listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. Because in 2 Peter 1, remember we read earlier how in verse 7, godliness is part of Peter's, is part of Peter's list of ingredients for spiritual growth. But look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust so notice how peter says there that the place to pursue godliness is not our culture it's not our society. You and I both know our society doesn't have godliness. You want godliness? Don't look to society for it. Society not going to help you. Society is about as far away from godliness as you can be right now. You don't pursue godliness by looking at culture. You don't pursue godliness by looking at society, by looking to politicians, by looking to our parents or our friends, or even our own standard, and even our own conscience. No, Peter says in those verses, we pursue godliness through God. Through the word of God. Through the inspired word of God that has been revealed to people like Peter and the other New Testament writers. That's what Peter says, that's what he means when he says God has granted to us. Everything pertains to life and godliness. When Peter says in verse 3, God has granted to us, everything pertains to life and godliness, he's not talking about us, like us. No, in that context, he's talking about himself and the other New Testament writers. 
He is saying that the Holy Spirit has granted to them, revealed to them the entire will of God. Everything it takes to make a person godly and they in turn wrote those things down so that we can read it and understand it and we can have godly lives today. That's what Peter is saying there in that context. And that's why we emphasize Bible reading so much in this place. Do you see why now? That's why our elders always reminded us to do our Bible reading. That's why we have Bible reading schedules. That's why we're reading through Paul's epistles this year. That's why we have that weekly Zoom class. The reason why we talk about Bible reading so much in this place is because through reading the Bible, we pursue godliness. Through reading the Bible, we learn about God. And we learn about God's nature. And we learn about what God has done for us. And we learn about why we should want to honor God and how we are to honor God. We need to pursue godliness through the sacred text, through the word of God. But not only must we pursue it through the word of God, we got to practice it. Got to practice it. Will you go in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2, please? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. You see, if I really want to honor, revere, respect, and fear God in my heart, if I really do that, then that's going to manifest itself in how I live you'll be able to easily recognize, hey, that's a godly person. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm saying that because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9. In verse 9, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works. Be dressed in good works as is proper for women making a claim to Godliness. Notice how our actions must match up with our words. It's not enough to claim to be godly. Remember the religious leaders in the time of Jesus, they claimed to be godly. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they went around telling everybody, oh, we serve the Lord, we love the Lord, we, we know the law. They claimed to be godly, and Jesus said they're a bunch of hypocrites. He knew their hearts. It's not enough to claim to be godly. We got to back up that claim with action. We got to dress ourselves in it. We got to live that way every single day. You see, the truly godly people, they don't just talk the talk, but they also walk the walk. They practice godliness. They show the world that they truly honor God by the way that they dress, Paul says in that context, and by the way they talk. And by the way, they treat people and worship God and behave in every facet of life. We got to pursue godliness. We got to practice it. But then finally, let me say this. We also got to value it. If you have godliness, you got to really value it in your life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're still in Timothy. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 6. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, the apostle Paul says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Notice how when you have godliness attached with, a con with contentment, you're content with your blessings. Paul says you don't just have gain. You have great gain. You have great gain in your life when you have godliness attached with contentment. Why does godliness lead to great gain? 
Well, the reason why godliness is great gain is because it benefits us in this life and in the life to come. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Go back to chapter 4, look at verse 7. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 7, Paul says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old, only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves, exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. Train yourself, exercise, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline, bodily training, bodily exercise is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, I know for a fact that many of you here, my dear friends, you love to exercise your body. You like to go to the gym. Some of you got gym membership. You like to walk. You like to run. Like to lift weights. You, you, you like to play sports. You like to make sure your body's in shape. Hey, oh, that's fine and good. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible says that that, that can benefit you in, in your life. Paul says there's benefit to bodily discipline and bodily exercise, but that benefit is only now. That benefit is temporary. That benefit is only in this life and this physical body. You see, unlike lifting weights and jogging and walking in your neighborhood and playing sports, godliness exercises your soul. Godliness disciplines your soul to have a proper attitude towards God. And it can help you make righteous decisions. And it can help you treat people right. And it can help you constantly think about God and prepare yourself to stand before God in judgment. And that's the last place I want to show you very quickly. It's in Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3. We started with Peter. We'll end with Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Peter is talking about the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord is going to come back in this world, this planet, the universe. It's going to be destroyed with fire. And Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Planet earth is going to be destroyed when the Lord comes back. And in verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people are you to be in holy conduct? And godliness. Notice how Peter says that godliness prepares us for the judgment day. Godliness prepares us for that great day. When the Lord is going to come back like a thief and everything this, in this life is going to be destroyed. Peter says that when the Lord comes back like a thief in the night, only one group of people is going to be spared the judgment of God and it's going to be the godly. It's going to be the people who have godliness. It's going to be the people who are trying to honor the Lord, not just in their worship, not just on Sunday when they gather with other Christians, but in their everyday lives, in their daily actions, with the fact that they truly have God first place in their hearts and in their lives. That's what Peter says about the importance of godliness there. And so while the world misunderstands what this word means for the most part. I hope and pray that after this study, we all, me first, can have good understanding of it. 
I hope, I hope that we all understand that godliness involves more than just going to church. It involves more than just going through the five acts of worship on Sunday. It involves more than just striving to be good people and, and religious. No, godliness involves seeking to honor God. It involves seeking to have reverence towards God and piety towards God and a deep desire to honor God every single day. And in every part of my life. That's what godliness is. And so the question is, are you doing those things? Are you living a life of godliness? If you're a Christian this morning, are you living a life of ungodliness or godliness? Now, if you're living a life of ungodliness, you know what it's time to do? It's time to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 and allow godly sorrow to lead you to repentance. Godliness is the first step to coming back to God and repenting. Or if you've never begun the journey of godliness, you can do so this morning through believing in Jesus and repenting of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if there's anyone here this morning who needs prayer, who needs to obey the gospel, who needs to either begin the journey or get back on the right path to living a godly life, come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing together.